Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, we come to God's Word this morning, and we're turning to the book of Judges. And between Christmas and a brief COVID break for me, it's been about a month since we've been in Judges, but we're looking at chapter 7 this morning as we return to the story of Gideon. As you're returning to Judges 7, just as a, a remind us where we were, Israel had found themselves once again under the oppression of Midian because of their sin and idolatry. Yet once again, God had showed his grace as he confronted Israel's sin by sending a prophet, as he equipped Gideon to deliver Israel by promising to be with him, as he also demanded Gideon's whole heart, telling him to chop up the altar of Baal and set an altar to the Lord and worship him instead. And then as God graciously assured Gideon of his power and his character through some wet and dry fleeces, on the ground. And when we left off at the end of chapter 6, Gideon had gathered several tribes of Israel. They were opposing the Midian army. And today we come to the main event, the clash of forces. But the battle, of course, does not play out the way we might anticipate a battle would, because the story makes clear once again that the real hero is not Gideon, but God himself. So let's read together Judges chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward... Your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. 
And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets in their hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zererah, as far as the border of Abel Mehalolah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. They captured two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for this story that you've given us, a story that is true about how you saved your people. Would you show us more of your character and your salvation this morning? We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as chapter 7 opens and Gideon moves his forces into position opposite the Midianite camp, God comes to speak to Gideon on the eve of the battle. Now, Gideon is clearly the underdog here. He's the outnumbered little guy from the country that's been oppressed for 20 years, facing off against the Midianite hordes who've got a 20-year streak of winning. Now, there's any number of things you might say to an underdog on the eve of a sports contest or battle. You might say, stick to the game plan and play to your strengths. You might say, do your best and leave everything out on the field. But I'm pretty sure that no coach or general has ever come to his team on the eve of a, of a battle or a game and said, you know, guys, we're just too good. We're too strong to win this one. 
And so it sounds like utter nonsense when God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you have too many men. You're going to have to be smaller if you're going to win this one. But God's goal, of course, is not victory in itself, but his own glory. And his own glory is made known through our weakness, not through our strength. And God is going to magnify his glory in this story. He's going to do it as he states the principle, puts the principle into practice, shows his patient care of his people, and then accomplishes his purpose. So I want to walk through the story. We'll see these things, and we'll start with verse 2, where God states the principle. You see what God says there. He, he puts it very plainly for Gideon. He says, the people with you, Gideon, are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Notice a few things here. First, notice that God does intend to save Israel. But God wants to save Israel in a way that will make it abundantly and obviously clear beyond any shadow of a doubt that it is God who brought the victory. It is not Gideon's leadership. It is not the amazing fighting prowess of the Israelite army. It is the power and sufficiency of God alone. And God wants to win in such a way that will highlight that for his people. Of course, that's exactly how God has worked in his people all through history. You just think of the story of the Exodus. You know, God could have maybe changed Pharaoh's mind and just let Israel go. But then maybe the people would have been thinking, well, I guess Pharaoh didn't need so many servants this year. No, God brings about ten plagues through the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and demonstrates to Israel and all the nations the power of the God of Israel. And then, of course, God led Israel out by way of the Red Sea so that they were trapped between an army and an ocean. And the only way that they could escape was divine power that would make a path through the sea. Here again in Judges 7, God wants to weaken Gideon and Israel to the point where it is absolutely impossible to say anything other than that God has saved them by his power and his sufficiency alone. But notice also that in addition to magnifying his glory, God also pursues this principle for the good of his people. He wants to protect them from sin. See, God knows how easy it is to experience something good and immediately take credit for it, saying, my own hand has saved me. But God says that if he brings about victory and we take credit for it ourselves, if Israel were for to take credit for that, it is to boast over the Lord. You see that phrase there that God uses in, in verse 2. In other words, to claim the credit for something that God has brought about is to set ourselves over God. It is to rob him of his rightful glory. And it's to set ourselves in pride against God utter sin. And so God in his goodness sets up the details of this rescue to guard Israel against sin, to keep them from being able to credibly take any credit at all for what is about to take place. I think we could add that God knows how quickly Israel continues to abandon him for the idols of the land. And so God graciously puts on display for Israel his own power over Baal's power demonstrating that he and he alone is the one that they need. And so here we see the principle. Pursuing Israel's weakness is done to magnify God's power and glory. But it is also a gracious move 
to woo Israel's hearts into trust and dependence upon him and to protect them from the danger of sin and pride. Now, I think if we were to pause for a second, any one of us would have to acknowledge that God's indictment of Israel is often an indictment of our hearts as well. You know how easy it is to be desperate for something and to pray for it, and then God answers the prayer and we take credit for it? And maybe it's parenting, and you know, we get in a desperate situation and we pray, say, God, I don't know what to do here. But then God answers our prayer and things go well, and we say, boy, we really, we really did well with this one. Or maybe it's ministry, and we know that the fruit of ministry, individually or as a church, only comes about through God's grace and the power of God's Spirit. And yet how easy is it when we see fruit in ministry, either in our church as a whole or individually, to start to, to feel a bit proud about how we're doing or to, to give credit to maybe our church or, or to our efforts. And the risk to our hearts is that we can begin to claim, not out loud, of course, we're wise enough to actually not, not actually say it, but in our hearts to think that some of the credit belongs to us. And so God often graciously gives us weakness, not strength, to undercut our temptation to sin and to boast against him. And instead, to entice our hearts through weakness to dependence upon him in a way that highlights his glory and goodness. So that's the principle that God states clearly in verse 2. But then God goes on to put the principle into practice in verses 3 through 8. Where God tells Gideon that they're not going to take everyone who tried out for the team. They're going to go through two rounds of cuts to get the squad that God wants out on the field. First, God tells Gideon to dismiss anyone who is afraid, and 22,000 people head off home. Now, I think, honestly, if you think about the 20-year history of Midian crushing Israel, the surprising thing is actually that 10,000 of them were not afraid and stayed. Of course, this does make some practical sense. You don't want to head into battle with two-thirds of your army scared to death of what's going to happen, but We have to remember that the point here is not practicality. God is not trying to get the best fighting force out on the field. He's trying to get the smallest, most impossible to win fighting force on the field. And here he can dismiss two-thirds of them with one fell swoop. Now Gideon probably at this point is thinking, all right, Lord, we're pretty small now. There's 135,000 of the Midianites and there's 10,000 of us, 1 to 13. But God says it's still too many. And so we go to round two, and he says, head down for some water to drink. And those who kneel down on the bank to drink are set home, while those who scoop the water with their hands and and lap it out of their hands are kept. Now, if you work through Sunday school curriculum, you will see that there's often a lot of virtue assigned to these lappers of water. And I'll say, well, those who scoop the water up, they're really vigilant and paying attention. The others, they're just apathetic and lazy, kneeling down. Of course, vigilance is a virtue, but it's just not in the text here. Because the point is not that the lappers are a lean, mean fighting machine. The point is, again, that God could use their actions to reduce Gideon's army to a tiny, weak band of Israelite soldiers. See, Gideon started with 32,000, and that in and of itself is pretty tough odds against 135,000, but now God has sent home 99.1% of Gideon's army so that he's facing a Midianite army that fills the valley like locusts and has innumerable camels with just 300 men. 
But God makes the point in verse 7. With these 300 men, I will save you and give Midian into your hand. And that's the principle, isn't it? It will have to be God who will save them because he's put the principle into practice and made Gideon weak to the point that only God's power could save them so that God's glory and God's name get all the credit. Now, I can only imagine what Gideon must have been thinking as he looked at this little group of guys in their trumpets and clay pots and then looked across the valley at the Midianite army. But do you notice that that Gideon obeys every step of the way? We don't have any record of, of Gideon arguing or doubting or, or pushing back against the Lord. In faith, he trusts God, even in this counterintuitive command. And I think this is a great example of Hebrews 11.34. When it comments about the judges and their faith and mentions Gideon specifically and says, through faith, they were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. And while all the glory of this event will go to God alone, I pray that we might learn from Gideon's prompt faith, which came from knowing what God's word had told him to do, having confidence in the God who told him to do it, and acting based on God's character, despite the optics of the situation. So here we have it. The principle put into practice, but note then in verses 9 through 14 how God demonstrates his patient care for Gideon. See, God, of course, had every right to expect Gideon to obey. He is actually, after all, God, and God has already given Gideon multiple fleece signs and a fire miracle on a rock to demonstrate his power and his character. But do you see how kind God is, how patient God is? He comes to Gideon the night before the battle and offers Gideon a further assurance of his character. He says, he does not say, Gideon, all right, I've proven myself three times to you now. I hope you're ready to uh, just go in confidence and do what I'm wanting you to do. He says, if you are afraid, Gideon, go down to the camp, and you will be strengthened to go down against them. So Gideon goes down, and he arrives just in time to hear some watchmen's chatter. And one of the watchmen is relating a dream. It's a fairly strange dream. It reminds me of one of those dreams you have around like five in the morning when you're kind of awake and still drifting in and out of sleep. A loaf of barley bread rolls into the camp and knocks over a tent. But the other watchman immediately, without missing a beat, says, this is none other than the sword of Gideon. God has given us into his hand. And so Gideon witnesses both the fear in the camp, but also God's perfect power and providence to bring him to this place, to give this dream, and to let him witness this conversation. And Gideon's response is to worship. You know, when Gideon returns then to the camp, confident in God's power, he says, let's go. God has given this army into our hand. And this is such a beautiful picture of God's patient, reassuring care for his people. How many of us at times have wrestled with with worries or doubts, despairs, fears? The commentator Dale Ralph Davis, commenting on this passage, says, God does not ridicule us for our fears, nor does he mock us for being fragile. He takes uncertain and fearful folk, strengthens their hands, and makes them able to stand for him, whether it's in school or at home or in work. 
This is the kind of God we have. The kind of God who will write to us in Psalm 103, 13 and 14, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you love someone, you are willing to assure them of your love. And God does the same. He is the great reassurer. He does that here with Gideon as he patiently and kindly reassures Gideon's heart of his own power and enables him to move forward in trust and obedience. I think if we say the same thing for us, we are called to faith-filled obedience. But the God who calls us to trust and to obey is the God who speaks to us in his word, the God who acts with patient care to assure his weak people of his presence, his power, his promises, his faithfulness, and his love. So having stated the principle and put the principle into practice and demonstrated his patient care, we come finally to God accomplishing his purpose in verses 15 to 25. Gideon divides his men into three groups and surrounds the Midianite camp right at the beginning of the middle watch of the night. As all 300 men blow their trumpets, smash their jars, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now the shouts and the smashing of torches all around the camp is actually a fairly brilliant plan. It would have made Gideon's army seem much larger than it was in the dark as all you see is the torches surrounding you. And by doing this right at the beginning of the middle watch was also significant. The watch was typically divided into three sections, which meant that right at that moment, a third of the men would just be arriving at their watch stations, a third would be walking back to their tents, and a third would be sound asleep. And so the the clanging and clashing and shouting, you can imagine what would happen if you're awoken and you look out your tent and a third of the men are walking towards you, you see armed men walking towards you, what do you think? There's an enemy in the camp. If you're just arriving at your watch and you look back at the camp and see fighting, you think there's an enemy in the camp. And so the Midianites start attacking themselves, and they turn and flee. But of course, it's not this brilliant plan that brings about success. Don't think that this plan would spook 135,000 well-trained soldiers on a given day. Gideon says aloud in verse 15 what we already know. The Lord has given the host of Midian into our hands. And verse 22 states explicitly, it was the Lord who set every man's sword against his comrade. And so the Lord accomplishes his purpose. He works victory through weakness, bringing about this deliverance with 300 men who didn't even have swords with them at the time. So that it is clear to all that it's God who has saved his people. And he, and he alone, deserves the glory. As we reflect on this passage, I want to take a few minutes here to reflect on this principle of weakness. You know, weakness is rarely desirable. I think if we were to make a list of the top 10 things we would hope characterize our life, weakness would not make the list. Maybe we could even make a, a list of the top 100 things and it wouldn't make the list. Most of us might be willing to grit our teeth and, and bear it through times of weakness, but few of us really rejoice in weakness. And yet when God works in his people, he very often does it through weakness in which we are stripped of our human strength and sufficiency and forced to rely upon God 
and his strength and sufficiency. This summer, Melissa Kelly wrote an article for the PCA's magazine entitled, In God's Economy, Weakness is Greater Than Strength. She quotes a Christian college professor who said, you know, we live in a myth that we are independent and self-sufficient, able to run our lives. When empirically and theologically, that's a joke. And that myth was shattered for Melissa Kelly when as a 24-year-old young professional, she was suddenly and unexpectedly bedridden for weeks and then faced years of fatigue and migrating pain. It took 17 years of fatigue and pain before she was finally diagnosed with Lyme's disease and began to receive treatment and see some healing. But Kelly notes this. She said, you know, when we face suffering, when unexpected events disrupt our nation, our economy, our health, our sense of normalcy, our sense of security, these events shake us out of our complacency. They humble us. They awaken us to the reality that has been there all along, but we have not been willing to recognize that we are not masters of our fate. We do not have the power to assemble our lives like building block towers growing ever upward. This is disconcerting to realize, to be sure, she says. We would not choose these challenges for ourselves. But, she says, there is blessing And being faced with our limits, even limits that are smaller than we realized. And finding that God specializes in making strength out of weakness. After all, isn't it often precisely in the weakness that God in his power draws us into his sufficiency. And works in us and through us so that the glory obviously and completely rebounds to him and to him alone. Perhaps that's why weakness characterizes God's work all throughout Scripture. You know, if the Son of God were going to come to the earth, it could have been in blazing fire and in power upon power. But how does the Son of God come to earth? In weakness, as a baby, born to a poor family, in an animal cave, growing up a carpenter's son, who suffered, was rejected, and crucified the ultimate epitome of weakness. And yet that weakness on the Son of God's part led to resurrection glory and salvation for His people. Scripture reminds us that for us, too, in our salvation, our first step is always one of weakness. It is not one of trying to do all that we must do to come to God. It is the first step to salvation is rather repentance recognizing and acknowledging the depth of our sin and the depth of our inability and desperate need of him. As Ephesians 2 reminds us, we have no hope of saving ourselves. We have no hope of living up to the standard or keeping up with the church system. No, salvation can only come by God's kindness, by his grace alone, as he died to take the punishment that we deserved. He made our hearts alive and able to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. He gave us his spirit to give us new life that we might live with him for all eternity. So that it is all of grace, it is all of him that we are saved through faith in Jesus. It is not of ourselves so that none of us might boast over against the Lord. 
It's not just our salvation, though. God continues to use weakness to draw us back into dependence upon him, doesn't he? Think of 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, when Paul says that he and those who were with him were so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they despaired of life itself. But, says Paul, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Or think of Paul's maybe more famous words, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, is three times he pleads with the Lord to take away the physical thorn in his flesh. And what does the Lord respond? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Perhaps it's the same reason then that just as he did in the life of Gideon, God so often brings fruit for the gospel through weakness. I think of Paul, how he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you, Corinthians, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is true all throughout church history. I think of a small-town Scottish pastor in the 1700s. His name is not well known. In fact, those in his town called him an ale minister. It meant he was such a bad speaker that when he stood up to preach, everyone headed for the tavern. And yet in 1740, God chose that pastor and his preaching to bring about a revival in their town. I think of Dave Furman, who unexpectedly in 2006, just 15 years ago, out of nowhere, developed a nerve condition which disabled him in both of his arms. Unexpected suffering. And yet God has chosen to use him to lead a thriving church plant in the Middle East and to write blogs and books that have blessed countless believers going through difficulty. I think of many of you in our own congregation who have been such an example to me. You have faced life-changing medical diagnoses you faced unexpected griefs and losses. you faced sleeplessness, discouragements, despairs, and yet have continued to walk, not in great grit and strength, but step by step, with your eyes fixed on the Lord, upheld by His strength to the glory of His name alone. See, these stories are not stories of amazing overcomers. They're stories of simple men and women of faith whom God made weak and then chose to use to bring about fruit that was so clearly due to the power and glory of God alone. It sounds a lot like the story of Gideon, doesn't it? And his band of 300, whom God used to bring about salvation in Israel in such a way that Israel could not boast against the Lord, but could only see that God himself cared for his people and delivered them. Sounds a lot like God's own son too, doesn't it? who took on and went through the worst of suffering and weakness, that he might save anyone who would look to him in faith. And so today, may we rejoice in weakness. And may we start by ceasing to look for our, to ourselves, by ceasing to defend ourselves or depend upon ourselves, and look instead to Jesus, our Savior, recognizing that salvation comes from him alone. And may we step out in faith 
in the midst of whatever he has called us to go through, knowing that his sufficiency and his power will be evident in it, such that all the glory will clearly and evidently and only belong to him, our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Oh, our great God, how we thank you for this story of Gideon, a story that is a a fun story for us to read as you bring about salvation in battle through this small band of 300. Oh, Father, may we not miss what you are showing us about yourself, that you are the one who saved your people, and that you work through weakness, not strength, so that the glory belongs to you alone, that the sufficiency is yours alone. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would guard our hearts from ever daring to boast against the Lord. And instead, use us, even in our weakness, especially in our weakness, to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that all sufficiency and glory goes to you alone. May you be magnified in Christ Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.